Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him So here we are. This is Chris, and welcome to the Run Run Live episode. No episode number, because this is an in-betweener. I am going to give you my Vermont race report. I am not reading from a script right now, or maybe I am. Maybe I'm reading from a script that is written to sound like I'm not reading from a script. So these are my impromptu introductory comments. I've been super busy over the last couple of weeks, so I haven't been able to get any writing done. I apologize, but I will get this out today to you so you can have it for this, this bi-weekly incident. I got hit with a bunch of podcast expenses, so if anybody feels like signing up for a membership on my site, uh, I will personally thank you for that, help defray some of the cost here. Uh, you know, it's not a lot, but it's probably, I don't know, I don't know, 700 to to 1000 bucks a year or something like that. Because you got to have all the websites, you got to have the hosting, you got to have the equipment, you got to have, you know, that doesn't include my time, obviously, <laughs> which I give freely. So I'm sitting in my backyard, so you will hear the backyard noises. You will hear chipmunks and maybe some... Some birds of prey or some other birds in the background. You'll hear a little bit of the wind in the trees. Maybe you hear some bugs. Maybe you hear the horses next door whinny a bit. You might hear some airplanes go overhead. We're right in the flight path for Hanscom Field. Uh, but usually they come in a little bit later. You know, they come in around dusk. And they come in, you know, on the work days, not on the Saturday night like this is. There's a bird. That's a robin sitting over there. You can hear the robin yelling at me. There's a squirrel behind me. See, so this is all just like color, right? All right, so without further ado, let's get going here. Vermont, 2019, the French farce. And what is a farce? A farce is a comedy that aims at entertaining the audience through situations that are highly exaggerated, extravagant, and thus improbable. Farce is also characterized by physical humor, the use of deliberate absurdity or nonsense, and broadly stylized performances. 
covered in dirt, sweat, and sawdust. There I was, laying on the table in the emergency room at my local hospital, a nice, thick, maroon swell of blood blobbing out of the gash on my shin, waiting for the doctor lady to come back. You might think this would make me cranky, but on the contrary, I was having a pretty good day. I was in a good mood. It was, ironically, Memorial Day, a long weekend, and I had gotten a lot done, including running the marathon in Vermont on Sunday. I was relieved to have that off my agenda, to be done training and back to working on other stuff, like, you know, cutting up trees that I had felled in the yard. Then the machete glanced off a branch, and I whacked myself square on the shin bone with that long, heavy, sharp blade designed for slicing right on the shin bone. Nothing serious, just a bit of a rent on the protective covering of skin that keeps the red stuff in. Editor's note, rent, in this case, means to divide, usually violently or abruptly, from the Middle English renden and Old English rendan. I staunched it with a rag from my chainsaw box and hobbled inside for some awkward first aid. I flushed it out with Bactine and taped a bunch of gauze to it, wrapping the tape around my calf, ending up with something that you might see in an old war film or maybe even an earlier mummy movie. I wasn't looking forward to the emergency room. On a major holiday in the U.S., it was sure to be filled with drunken yahoos, and hold my beer, accidents. I brought along a book. I was going to start working on this report for you in the hours of waiting that I anticipated, but I was positively thrilled with the service. I barely had a chance to sit down in the squeaky vinyl institutional seat when I was called. I was attended to by no less than four or five charming, enthusiastic, and competent medical professionals. It turned out that the doctor lady on duty, her favorite thing was stitches. And we had a great chat. I was in and out in 45 minutes. They were impressed that I could tell them exactly how much I weighed. And that, and then they were almost as impressed with me having run a marathon in Vermont the day before as I was impressed with myself for, well, you know, just being me. It's a curse. So I drove home and finished chopping down my trees. The next night, I went to the local Red Cross and tried to give blood. I see you rolling your eyes. Chris, what the hell? You ran a race Sunday. You put yourself in the emergency room Monday. Why are you trying to give blood on Tuesday? In my defense, they really want my blood. They are on me several phone calls and emails a day about how much they want my blood. But I'm usually in the middle of a training cycle, and I can't really afford to be tapped of my basic circulatory life essence. Consequently, I try to schedule blood donations for after my target events. And they had some nerve. After begging me for weeks and putting me through all the preliminaries, they turned me away when I told them of my recent forestry mishap. Apparently, there was some silly rule about no open wounds. I mean, you're after my blood. Wouldn't this be a positive proof point that I've got some to spare? Yeah. No worries. On to my next thing. I like to be tightly scheduled. I'm happiest when I have a nice pile of tasks in my queue. 
That's how my weekends go in the spring and summer, and I guess all year round. A yellow sticky pad list of chores in my pocket that I try to get done to have that warm, fuzzy feeling of accomplishment from washing the car or folding the laundry or maybe even running a race. Teresa had come home from the city to pick up some stuff Friday. We had to do a bike swap. I had procured a new city bike for her. And a city bike is a bicycle that is perfectly functional, but has low value and low probability of being stolen. The 40-year-old Schwinn I had previously procured was broken. She had managed to crank out the bearing, which is not something I'm going to fix on a bike where the tires are worth more than the bike. I procured a new old bike, cleaned it up, got most of the gears working, and transferred the rack from the old, old bike Saturday morning. As we are all destined to do, I have turned into my father. And then I had to drive her back into the city Saturday, and I had to be in Vermont Saturday night as well. I had packed up my race stuff, and since I was driving, I didn't need to be picky, a little of this, a little of that. I opted to go back to my old Brooks baggy shorts with the bike short liner because they have enough pockets to carry all my standard race stuff. A couple of gels, a baggie of Enduralites, a small thing of lube. I was trying to make the 7 p.m. closing time to pick up my bib in Vermont. And Burlington is about three hours and change from my house. And after the side trip to the city, it was going to be tight. The weather forecast called for clear skies Saturday, slowly changing to rain in the evening, then into thunderstorms throughout the morning. And I try not to think too much about the weather when I'm approaching a race. There really isn't much you can do about it. I mean, there's no sense in wasting your energy fretting. It was starting to drizzle when I pulled into the Race Expo Hotel in South Burlington with eight minutes to spare. And I was able to get my bib and pick up a couple Espresso Love Gels, the goose, the old school nutrition. Hear that? In a change of pace, I got a medium shirt instead of a large due to my current waifish deportment. Then I wandered off into the strengthening showers to find my campground, my comfy, rustic home, to pitch my lonely tent for the evening. To get to my campground, I was routed right by the race start and finish area, which was nice. Got to look that over. The college town of Burlington sits on the edge of Lake Champlain, and the race course for the marathon is sort of a multiple figure eight that goes... North of the city, turns around, runs back through the city, turns again, comes back by the park again to go north again, and then comes back south along the bike trail at the edge of the lake to the finish. And eyeballing it on the map, I thought I might be able to walk to the race start from my camp in the morning. The bike trail that the race finishes on in the last couple miles runs right by the edge of the campground. So I measured it out. When I was coming in, it was over a mile by road, and I figured I probably wouldn't want to hike that, especially in a storm in the morning, and I definitely wouldn't want to hike back after the race. 
I called Brian to see what his plans were, and he told me he wasn't racing. He was running with his son, Chris. Good for him. And that completes something special for him. He has now run a marathon with every one of his kids. But for me, always thinking of myself, this is one less person I could pace with. (laughs) Did I mention I was racing? Yeah, I had a goal. I was trying to spin that fitness from my Boston training cycle into a qualifying race. I thought it would be a no-brainer. I was in good shape. This was supposed to be a more reasonable course. I'd just hang on to the back of the nearest pace group and be done with that. Piece of cake. Checking into my camp, my campsite, it was raining fairly hard. And of course, as I unrolled my tent, it started pouring. I was trying to hurry, but that just made things slower. And the way these tents work is that there isn't really a roof. The roof is a screen, a mesh. That's the roof part of it. To, I suppose, let your foul camp breath and farts out. But that also lets the rain come right through. And the way you make it watertight is you have to string this other bit over the top called a fly, over the open part, which was giving me a lot of trouble in the wind. So picture me trying to do all this in the pouring rain in the wind. I must have looked incredibly pitiful. So hold that picture in your head next time you think about, you know, hiking the Appalachian Trail and think that's a great idea. You know, sometimes it rains. Some guy even ran over from a neighboring camp to to help me. And uh, at least it wasn't dark out yet. The good news was that I was right next to the shower and bathroom facilities building. I'm talking 10 feet away. The bad news was that I was right next to the shower and bathroom facilities building. Yeah, lots of traffic, lots of lights, people wandering around. So I took a few minutes and I pumped up my mattress. And this all seemed like a great idea when I set it up last month. Not so much now, soaking wet, pumping away in my little tent with the rain beating on the sides. And now I'm thinking, you know, I should have some sort of meal before I crash out in my soggy hidey hole. So I did what any sentient 21st century droid would do, and I asked Siri for a grocery store nearby. I was thinking maybe a Whole Foods or something similar, but Burlington, being an old New England town, is filled with corner grocery stores, basically one-room affairs with beer, chips, and lottery tickets. And I was getting tired at this point, so I gave up and bought a turkey sandwich and a beer. I returned to my campground and sat in my truck thinking about how sad a spectacle I was. Soggy in my truck, with the rain pouring down, chewing on a gas station sandwich, having paddled my canoe through these types of adventures before. I thought to myself, smiling a bit, this will make a great story. (laughs) I was worried a little bit about logistics for the morning. I didn't want to hike the mile plus to the start in a rainstorm. I decided I would drive in early to try to find a place to park. They said there was municipal parking, but after my grocery store adventure, I wondered what that would be like or if it even existed. C'est la vie, time for Betty Bye. In normal conditions, my tent, mattress, and sleeping bag are pretty darn comfy. These weren't exactly normal It was storming hard, with blowing wind, driving rain. I could hear the waves crashing down on the lakeshore with a steady roar. The spotlights on the facilities, ten feet away, lit up my tent like an operating theater. 
I crawled in, dragging mud and water with me, crawled into my sleeping bag, and wrapped my throwaway shirt around my head like a bandage to block the light, put my phone on airplane mode, and set the alarm for 5 a.m. That should give me plenty of time to get ready and find a parking spot. Now, on a normal night in the campground, hard up against the communal bathroom, I probably would have been kept awake by the noise of the park denizens coming and going and recreating. But this was not a normal night. And I considered my good fortune the roar of the waves. And the wind and the steady drum of hard rain was like a meditation track, right? White noise. And the song The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald kept running slyly through my head for some reason. The legend lives on from the Chippewa down of the big lake. They call it Gitchigumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. And that's when I realized I had to pee. And at the same time, I realized that I would rather have my bladder explode and die of sepsis than go out of this tent again into the storm. Then I fell asleep. A couple hours later, I woke up to an eerie, no pun intended, silence. I was woken up by a pause in the storms. It was a bit before 11 o'clock, and I thought, now would be an excellent time to make a run for the facilities next door. And as I started moving around, I realized there was a fair amount of water inside my tent. Whether it was for me bumping the sides or rain coming sideways under the fly, I don't know, but my sleeping bag was getting wet. And as I extracted myself and went to the restroom, I thought, this might be a problem if the storms returned and temperatures dropped a bit more. So we had a executive meeting in my head, and we decided to sleep in the truck for the rest of the night. It was surprisingly comfortable with my sleeping bag and the seat all the way back, and I slept great. My 5 a.m. alarm woke me to a humid, cool morning with scattered, pudgy clouds. And I was still worried about parking, so I got my stuff on and drove into town. Not only was the parking garage available and deserted, I'm pretty sure it was free. The gate was open, and the display had some sort of nondescriptive announcement on it, so I'm pretty sure it was free. For me, it was free. I didn't have too many options for breakfast, so I ate one of those spring energy gels I had brought. They're really more like baby food than race gels anyhow. My next mission would be to find a cup of coffee somewhere. So I took $5 with me, and I went out to walk around the start area. And after a few laps, I found a gas station with some coffee, and I checked that box. But that left me with another problem. Now I had $3 left over. And I didn't know what to do with it. I could just drop it on the ground. I could try to carry it with me in the race. In the end, I just handed it to some guy who was wearing a Bruins shirt. He was confused. He was pretty sure I was up to something nefarious. Then I just hung around the park and stretched and relaxed and rubbed. It was partially sunny, pretty humid, a bit of wind, a lot of puddles. The race start was 7 o'clock, has been since that heat incident of two years ago. Looking out over the lake, there were towers of blackish clouds going by, but none seemed to be coming towards us. As I wandered about, someone called my name, and it was Brian and his son, and I was glad to see them, glad to have someone to chat with. So we hung out 
and listened to the race announcements. Bart Yasso was saying something to the assembled throng. There were maybe, I don't know, 3,000 people in the race, lots of 50 staters, a nice small size for a race. About 15 minutes before the start, the announcer came on and told everyone to leave the park and take shelter in the parking garages. Apparently, one of those black clouds out over the race had us in its sights. So the crowd filed out of the park, across the street, down the road. Some went to the parking garages, some went to the hotels. Brian, his son, and I went into the courtyard hotel lobby, and we stood around there and chatted with folks, basically stood around for 45 minutes while another small storm cell passed over the race start. And that's a first for me. They let us go back to the race start after the danger had passed, and speaking of passing, I got passed by Bart Yasso on the stairs leaving the hotel. I said hi, but he was in a hurry, and uh, he didn't remember who I was, although we have talked many times. He got back to his announcing. We found our corrals. I hunted down the 330 pace leaders, and we were off and running about 745. It was a bit humid, but nothing terrible. I hung close to the pace leader, and we were quickly out and on pace. There were two pacers for 330. They did a good job. They kept us within five seconds of the pace, even with the rolling hills and the hard lefts and the hard rights and the slight wind. And they did something else really useful. Instead of running together, one guy ran about 50 to 100 feet behind the other guy. So I started out with the lead guy, but then filtered back to the second guy. That was really good to sort of spread out the pack and and keep everybody comfortable. The effort was steady, but not hard. I felt fine. And it was hillier than I had assumed, than I had surmised from Brian's description. There was one long hill back into the city on that first loop that wasn't overly steep, but was a nice long pole, probably a mile. And there was a pretty good headwind in that direction. So it was useful to be in the pack, and I was able to draft the the pack, the pacers. And there were some good crowds in the city, but not much when you got out of town. And when the sun came out through the clouds, it was a little hot, especially with the humidity. I was staying on my nutrition, taking enough water, sipping from my bottle of F2C. The gels they had on course were maple syrup gels, which I guess is fitting for Vermont. But basically, you're drinking pancake syrup. I knew the big hill was coming at mile 15-ish. And as we turned back towards that hill, I put a little extra fuel in the fire and dropped the pace a bit. I knew from my training that I had some faster miles in me, and I figured I'd put a little buffer between me and the pace group in case I struggled on the hill. I thought that once I got over the hill, I could relax into the the rocking chair, so to speak, and just glide at home. So up to this point, I was pacing well. Not easy, but not hard either, just race pace. The hill was a monster. It was a monster for me. For some reason, it really knocked me back on my heels. I had to grind it out. I didn't walk, but I lost some time. I stayed ahead of the pace group. I was suffering badly as I neared the top of that hill, but I got over it. And then on the backside, I was I was trashed, and I was working. I was focused on trying to find that recovery. My hips were tight, and my stride was painful. That high hamstring tendonitis was coming on and it was biting me in the ass. And remember when I said I had some good training runs 
and some not-so-good training runs since Boston? Well, remember how I said I had somehow managed to give myself tendonitis in the ass? Yeah, well, one of those workouts was a 20-plus mile tempo run, and what happened on that run was I got to about 16 miles and this tendonitis flared up, and it hurts. It's like some big monster biting your ass, and it makes it hard to lift your, your legs, and it makes running up hills really hard, and it makes it hard to keep your stride length. And I ended up doing a fair amount of walking at the end of that workout. And this showed up again at Vermont right after the big hill, about 16, 17 miles in. It wasn't the wall. I had plenty of calories. It wasn't cramps. I had plenty of salt. It was this pain in my ass that kept me from holding my pace. And that's where I stopped racing and started limping. In a few minutes, the 330 pacer, he went by me and I said, hey, that hill was a bitch. And he said, yeah, but it's done now. And I said, yeah, but so are my legs. And at this point, I still had probably a two and a half minute cushion, but I couldn't race anymore. And I had eight or nine miles to go. There were still some rolling hills and each one of those little rises hurt like hell. So I threw in the towel and started walking and jogging just to get get back. I ran by my campground a couple more times and thought, yeah, maybe I'll just leave. My truck wasn't there. It was downtown, so that wouldn't work. I was depressed. I got to be honest with you, I was depressed. I was having dark thoughts. I thought to myself, now I know why those people cheat. You know those people who cheat to get into the Boston Marathon? You can put in the work, do all the right things, and what do you get? Nothing. That's why they cheat. And I might have even had a thought or two about how I'm just getting slower and what's the point of staying in a world that's just a constant drip, drip, drip loss of ability. Such is the thinking when you're in the death march. When you get into the death march late in the race, you notice there's other people doing the same death march pace as you are. You see them walking, stumbling, then summoning the strength to run a little bit, walking some more. It's the camaraderie of zombies. I mean, it wasn't awful physically. I was fit enough to not be physically suffering. Not like a calorie crash. Not physical exhaustion. My heart rate was fine. I just couldn't get my legs to turn. And my mind had left the building, and I was done. Done with the training. Done with chasing unicorns. Done with it all. And at one point on the course, it cuts through a wooded section, somewhere in the high miles, like probably around 20. Just short, just this this little short bit of trail to connect two road sections. But with the rain and the runners, it had turned into a mud hole. And I felt really bad for the runners who were still racing. Also, late in the race, in one of these neighborhood sections, there was a bunch of people, a couple of neighborhood families, handing out Budweiser pony cans, having a grand old time, having a party in their yard. And I had no desire for a can of beer, but one of the guys in front of me took one. He took a sip, and then he immediately dropped it on the ground. It hit the ground with like a, it like exploded, a big splash of foam. And the guys handing out the beers were yelling at him for dropping it, and they got like in this argument. I'm like, it's mile 20-something of a marathon. It was, uh, it was a bit surreal. Finally... We found our way onto that bike path for the last couple of miles of the finish. And I came upon a guy, he's clutching his cap, sort of hopping around and screaming, screaming with a cramp. 
So I stopped and I dug out the rest of my Enduralites and I gave them to him and said, chew these. Get the salt into your system. Chew them. And I hope he had some water with him. <laughs> or that might be awful. Uh, but there's a tip for you. If you ever get the cramps and you have some salt pills, chew them. So then you don't have to digest them. You'll absorb them right through your mouth. With the late start, it was getting pretty hot and pretty humid, but it didn't really, that didn't impact me. I was out of the fight before any of that would have impacted me. As I was pulling into the finish, I was trading places with an older, gray-haired woman wearing a singlet that I recognized. It was from one of the regional running clubs that I know, and I thought to myself, great, my finishing photo is me being outkicked by this lady. I wasn't in a good place mentally. So I managed to find a pretty fast last mile heading into the finish. It didn't matter. I had turned a two and a half minute buffer into a 12 minute hole with a 347 finish. I got my medal, got a bottle of water, and I stood around waiting to see if Brian and his son weren't close behind me since I had lost so much ground. I had passed his daughter out on the bike path and she hadn't seen them yet. And then I saw that club singlet, the lady in the club singlet, and I went over to her to congratulate her, and she turned around and she said, Chris! <laughs> Turns out it was Linda, one of my friends, one of the Goon Squad runners, that I was having dark thoughts about. And we had a long chat, and we caught up, and she's coming off of AFib surgery. There you go, AFib surgery, starting her recovery. And the doctors had told her to quit running. And it took her a long time to find a doctor who would actually give her a correct diagnosis and fix it for her. But now she's on her recovery. She's coming back. I got my truck, made my way down to the campground. I didn't see any reason to sleep over another night, so I broke it down and loaded it up. I stopped to tell the kid I was leaving early, and he insisted on giving me my $36 back. Good karma. Good kid. So I drove the sunny, warm day home to get back onto my list of chores. I must tell you, I was quite relieved to get this race over with. But now I'm out of qualification, and I don't have the time nor the energy for another campaign this summer. I Maybe I can't make the standard. I don't know. It kills me to give up. But I'm not having any fun anymore, and my body is talking to me. I need some time off. took me a few days to come to grips with not running Boston. And I'm not making any proclamations, but I'm okay with letting it go after 21 years. I'm not saying I'm letting it go. I'm saying I'm okay with it. That's the best I can give you. Coming out the back of this farce of a long weekend, that's the best I can give you. I'm okay with it. The legend lives on from the Chippewa on down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The lake, it is said, never gives up her dead when the skies of November turn gloomy. With a load of iron ore, 26,000 tons more than the Edmund Fitzgerald weighed empty. That good ship and true was a bone to be chewed When the gales of November came early 
Chip was the pride of the American side Coming back from Sunville in Wisconsin As the big freighters go, it was bigger than most With a crew and good captain well seasoned Concluding some terms with a couple of steel firms When they left fully loaded for Cleveland Then later that night when the ship's bell rang Could it be the north wind they'd been feeling? The wind and the wires made a tattletale sound And the wave broke over the railing And every man knew as the captain did too Twas the witch of November come stealing The dawn came late and the breakfast had to wait When the gales of November came slashing When afternoon came it was freezing rain In the face of a hurricane west wind Time came, the old cook came on deck Saying, fellas, it's too rough to feed you At 7 p.m. a main hatchway gave in He said, fellas, it's been good to know you The captain wired in, he had water coming in And the good ship and crew was in peril And later that night when his lights went out of sight Came the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald Does anyone know where the love of God goes When the waves turn the minutes to hours The searchers all say they'd have made Whitefish Bay If they'd put 15 more miles behind her They might have split up or they might have capsized They may have broke deep and took water all that remains is the faces and the names of the wives and the sons and the daughters. Lake Huron Roll, Superior Sings. In the rooms of her ice water mansion Oh, Michigan steams like a young man's dreams The islands and bays are for sportsmen And farther below Lake Ontario Takes in what Lake Erie can send her The iron boats go as the mariners all go With the gales of November remembered
In a musty old hall in Detroit They prayed in the Maritime Sailors Cathedral The church bell chimed till it rang 29 times For each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald The legend lives on from the Chippewa Down of the big lake they call Gitchagumi Superior, they said, never gives up her dead When the gales of November come early 